reading from Luke 2, verses 1 to 20. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Okay, so I don't fear not for the behold, I bring upon this dead city, David, Sefer, and what be for all people, for you to you is born this day in that city that is safer and who is Christ the Lord and this will be set for you you will find it a baby at certainly close and lay in and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to the God and peace he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things that the shepherd told them. But Mary treasured up all of these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. I'd like to have Daryl up here. I'm going to pray for him before he opens up the word. Thank you. Living God, we thank you that your word is alive and active. And so as Darrow opens up your word, fill him with your Holy Spirit. Fill him with your wisdom. And as we listen, may we be saved in all the ways that we need to be saved. May we be healed in all the ways that we need to be healed. May we be rescued in all the ways that we need to be rescued. We thank you for this moment. We thank you for this preaching moment. We thank you that you, you continue to use Daryl in this way. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. 
Well, it is good to be with you this morning. Um, when I needed to step down as senior minister, uh, one of the saddest part of that was that I thought I would never get to preach on Christmas again. And Sharon said, don't you ever say that. You never know. Well, it turns out I've been able to preach on Christmas ever since. Uh, you might know that four times in this century, Christmas has fallen on the Lord's Day on Sunday. And three of those I have preached for you. So uh, this is a great privilege to be with you again. Now, before we uh, move into the word, I, I, I wanted to share something with you. Um, my brother, my youngest brother, lives in Denver, Colorado. And when he saw the bad weather conditions that we were facing, he thought he would send me this little piece of advice. And then I thought, we don't know what, I didn't know what we were going to face today, and we might need advice on how to drive. So anyway, I, this is what a weather person had up on a slide on a television in Denver. If you rarely drive on snow, just pretend you're taking your grandma to church. <laughs> There's a platter of biscuits and two gallons of sweet tea in a glass jar in the back seat. She's wearing a new dress and holding a crock pot full of gravy. It's <laughs> 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 pretty good. <laughs> I'm going to ask you to turn to one other person and share with that person what is your favorite Christmas carol. This might be a little risky because I may not get you back, but if you'll just turn to one other person, maybe you can do it with two. What is your favorite Christmas carol? Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you. On this Christmas morning, I'm going to invite you to join me in giving careful attention to the first Christmas carol ever sung. It is usually known by its Latin title, Gloria in Excelsis Deo. It's the song the choir of angels sang when Jesus of Nazareth was born. Luke 2, verse 14. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. The angelic choir is singing the promise of many of the prophets of old. Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. The bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations. Isaiah, we heard earlier. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders 
His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace, and there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. Micah, which we heard earlier. But as for you, Bethlehem Epaphra, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity, and this one will be our peace. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. But do we really hear what the angels are singing? Do we really hear what they are saying to the world? Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth. The words are not just a declaration of praise. The words are a call to deep conversion, to a radical conversion. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. Maybe we do not really hear what the angels are saying because the words are now too familiar. You know, like after hearing a commercial 25 times, you don't hear it anymore. Maybe this first Christmas carol is so familiar, we tune it out. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. Or maybe it's because the song is sung by angels. I mean, maybe that's the problem. We do not know what to do with angels. Clearly, we cannot tell the Christmas story without speaking of angels. And we cannot tell the Easter story without speaking of angels. Indeed, we cannot faithfully tell any of the chapters of the great story in the Bible without speaking of angels. What are we to do with angels? <laughs> I think it was one of the 20th century's greatest theologians, Karl Barth, who observed, it is argued that because the angels are not mentioned in our creeds, but only in our hymns, it's quite safely to ignore the angels. But he goes on to say, if we can sing about them, ought we not be prepared to talk about them? So is it because angels sing the choir, the choral, that we do not really hear what they're saying? Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth. I mean, what do angels know about things of earth? Or maybe it's that we think the angels are overreaching when Jesus was born. Maybe their enthusiasm for Jesus got out of hand, and so we secretly dismiss their words as overzealous overreaction. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. Or is it that the words simply are too much to believe in the face of the harsh realities of life on earth? Like, what earth are they talking about? This earth? Where? When? How many millions of lives have been lost in wars since the first Christmas when the angels sang their carol? How many trillions of dollars have been spent in creating ever more powerful weapons since the holy birth? How many untold numbers have suffered physical and emotional abuse since the Prince of Peace was born into the world? In Bethlehem last night and this morning, believers have gathered in the church under the protection of riot police with battle gear. Or think of Ukraine, the pictures coming from that place are horrific. 
The tragedy is that many soldiers on both sides grew up in Orthodox churches who in their liturgy chant the angel's song, as did soldiers on both sides of World's War I and II. Why, if the angel's song is true, do we live in a war-torn, anxiety-ridden world? Henry W. Longfellow raised the question in a poem set to music by his brother, which we sang earlier. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the word repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. I thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the broken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Is that why we really do not hear the words of the first Christmas, Christmas carol? The words fly in the face of the facts on the ground. So listen again, more carefully. Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth. Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth. Glory to God, peace on earth. Glory to God, peace. Are you hearing the connection? The angels are not only announcing a gift, they're telling us the context in which the gift is experienced. The angels are telling us and the whole world that the peace which the Prince of Peace brings to the world is realized and experienced in the context of glory to God. Glory to God peace. No glory to God, no peace. It is as simple as that. Finding a way to stop the building of more nuclear weapons, a wholly desirable goal, will not necessarily bring peace to the earth. Finding a way to get rid of assault weapons will not necessarily bring peace to our streets. Alleviating poverty Again, a wholly desirable goal will not necessarily bring peace to our troubled cities. That's because peace, shalom, is realized and experienced when there is glory to God in the highest. I submit to you that the angels are laying before us the infrastructure for peace in the world. Glory to God in the highest. The question, therefore, on this Christmas day is, what does glory to God mean? What does glory to God look like in practical terms? It does not mean to make God glorious. It does not mean to give to God something God lacks. To glorify God means to recognize God's glory. To glorify God means to recognize that God is and is all glorious. To glorify God means to look up and acknowledge God's power and wisdom and holiness and mercy. And it means, by necessity, to acknowledge that I am not God. I am not Lord, 
I am not Messiah. I am not the captain of the ship. To glorify God means, therefore, to give up the illusion that is holding our world captive. To give up the illusion that I am the center of my world. No one's going to tell me how to live. That's a dangerous thing to say when the no one includes God. To glorify God means to come to our senses and acknowledge that God is the center of my world. Each of us has a center around which our lives resolve, a center out of which and toward which our decisions and energy and time and talents flow. And to glorify God then means to center one's whole life around the center, true center of reality. To sing glory to God in the highest is to say to the living God, you are Lord of life and Lord of my life. You are source, the source of life and the source of my life. You are the beginning and the end and the middle. You are the one who made all things and who makes all things work. You are that without which I cannot live. You are therefore that around which, in which, out of which, toward which I will live my life. That, I think, is what the angels are singing in their Gloria in Excelsis Deo. They're declaring that the context in which the peace, which Jesus, the Prince of Peace, brings, can be experienced in the glory of God. Am, am I making sense? You can see how this makes sense for personal internal peace. When we are in turmoil, what thoughts and words are racing through our minds? Do they like me? <laughs> what if they decide against my opinion? What's in it for me? Will I do enough? Am I enough? How am I going to do this and that so I can do this and that? <laughs> around and around we go. And what does that say about us? It says that at that moment anyway, we are the center of our lives. I at the center is the fundamental cause of internal unrest. I at the center requires horrendous energy as I try to hold the world together. Glory to me sets us up for being easily offended and hurt. Glory to me leads to countless, rest, constant restlessness. And peace then comes by shifting the focus off of me and onto the one who made me and loves me enough to come for me as a baby in a manger. You see, we human beings are so magnificently made that we cannot be the center of our lives. We are so wonderfully made that only the infinite creator of our lives can be the center, and peace comes by surrendering to that center. I think you can also see how glory to God makes for interpersonal peace. Two people in a relationship, husband, wife, parent, child, employer, employee, colleague, colleague, who both live around and for themselves inevitably collide. Like those old bump bump cards at the fair, you remember? They simply bounced off each other and eventually drift apart. 
Peace between two such persons is possible only to the degree that their mutual self-interests coincide. They may enjoy a modicum of peace at the circumference of their lives, but not at the center. The more they keep moving toward the center that is I, the greater for potential conflict. And as they keep living for themselves, glory to me, they eventually discover that they actually have nothing that bind them. If, however, two individuals can share a common center, the chances for trust and cooperation increase, for they are bound together by something greater than themselves, and they can know peace not only on the circumference, but at the very core of their lives. And what is true of individuals is true of communities and nations. What is needed is a common center, one that is big enough to incorporate the diversity of the human family. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For born to you this day in the city of David is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He is big enough to win and redeem rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, male and female. Glory to God in the highest, who so loves the world that he gives his only begotten Son to us and for us, to make us one. Sociologists tell us that redemptive social change does not take place because things become so bad and we decide to change. In fact, sometimes when things become so deplorable, we, out of fear, choose unredemptive means and only make things worse. No, redemptive social change happens when people are given a new vision of how things can be. Unto you is born this day a Savior, Messiah, the Lord, who gives us a compelling vision, a divine vision of the truly human life. In his book, The Kingdom of God is a Party, Tony Campolo tells a story that awakens hope for peace on earth in me. He writes, During the U.S. Civil War, the Army of the Union and the Army of the Confederacy were locked in a vicious battle to death just outside the city of Richmond, Virginia. As night fell after the first day of battle, cheers were heard from the Confederate lines. When General Grant asked what was going on behind the enemy's lines, he was told that the wife of General George Pickett had given birth to a baby boy and that his troops were celebrating. Upon receiving the news, General Grant ordered bonfires to be lit and a toast to be given. Cheers and hurrahs rang out all night, and for a few hours, the shooting stopped as warring soldiers were drawn together for a birthday party. Is that not what draws us together, we diverse humans today? We're celebrating the birth of one who can make peace, if only we would listen to the first Christmas carol. Forgive me for using another illustration from the United States and for using an illustration from decades ago. Former President of the United States, Jimmy Carter, and I'm making no political statement by quoting him. <laughs> Jimmy Carter, because he was a faithful student of the Bible, you know that he taught Sunday school as many Sundays as he could, 
because he was a faithful student of the Bible, understood what the angels were singing. So in September of 1978, a time of great tension in the Middle East affecting the whole world, he brought together at Camp David, Maryland, Menachem Begin of Israel and Anwar Sadat of Egypt. He felt that as a disciple of the Prince of Peace, he had to do something. And although the negotiations were very difficult, with both of the leaders threatening to leave many times, after 13 days, the summit resulted in a peace, it, it, the, the summit resulted in a peace agreement. Now, why? Partly because Carter knew that in the Middle Eastern context, if you can just get two people to eat a meal together, something happens. Eating a common meal is a sacramental act, momentarily binding warring parties together by common food. But the real key to the success was that President Carter asked the world to pray. Do you remember that? Some of you remember back to 1978? The most powerful human being on the planet, on television, asked the whole world to pray. A clear expression of glory to God in the highest. That is, Mr. Carter asked the world to acknowledge that we all live under a higher authority, higher than any nation and any political party. All three leaders were thus openly and mutually placing themselves around a common center. They had openly and momentarily shifted the center from the glory of Israel, the glory of Egypt, the glory of America, to the glory of God. Yes, all three leaders had different understandings of who God is and what God is like, but the call to prayer and the act of praying together created a platform for dialogue. Interestingly, the three religions represented at Camp David, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, trace their spiritual roots to Abraham, to whom is made a promise of a son, in whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. But it was the man who believed the seed of Abraham had actually been born, who had the courage to call Christians and Jews and Muslims together. Glory to God in the highest peace on earth. The gift of peace is realized and experienced in the context of glory to God. Where are you with Jesus this morning? Where do you stand with this Prince of Peace on Christmas Day? We may not be able to do anything today about the war in Ukraine or about the animosity and vitriol between political parties, or about the other forms of turmoil in our city and nation. We can, however, do something about our own relationship with the one who is our peace. So how goes your soul today? Are you resisting Jesus and his lordship in any way? Is there any way in which you are resisting this radical conversion of shifting the center away from yourself to the only one who deserves the glory. I wish we had uh, 
kneeling rails before us. For it seems to me that that is the best way to respond to the first Christmas carol, to get down on our knees. And like the shepherds and magi, like Joseph and Mary, kneel before the King of kings and Lord of lords, surrender the reins of our lives, and welcome the peace which only he can give. One more time. Glory to God in the highest. And then there will be peace on earth. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.